Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're going to feature a full episode from the This Is Her Place podcast. That's a podcast series that tells the remarkable stories of Utah women past and present in all their diversity. You can find them at thisisherplace.org. Well, to begin the hour here, we've uh, got uh, podcast co-host Naomi Watkins uh, with us once again. Naomi, uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we're up to episode three. Uh, this is on public art, and we're, we're going to dive into the lives of three muralists. Uh, I, I don't know if you recall how we, how we got onto this, the subject of uh, public art and murals. I think um, we did because the pandemic had hit when we started doing this, and public art was still art that was accessible, right? Because it was on walls and street corners and while galleries and the museums were being, were closed. Yes, that's coming back to me now. And so you had very, and continues to be very timely. Yeah. And, you know, public art often reflects the contemporary issues that are happening. So you were seeing public art emerging with the protests after George Floyd's murder. Um, we're seeing public art flourish, um, from the pandemic, people, you know, trying to create things and miss the chaos, right? Uh, so set this up for us. Tell us uh, very briefly about the three muralists we're, we're going to be learning about here in this hour. So in this episode, we have Minerva Teichert, who many may be familiar with. She was a muralist and a painter, painted a lot about her Mormon heritage, followed by uh, Chicana artist Ruby Chacon, and who paints about her Chicana heritage. And then lastly is Jan Haworth, who is famously known for designing the cover of the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Heart Club Band album. And then uh, she recently uh, did a mural in, in Salt Lake City uh, featuring Utah women. So we talk about that. Yes, yeah, that was unveiled in August of 2020 um, in tandem with the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment last year. So mm-hmm. it's quite spectacular and timely given that we, you know, end for this podcast that we well, let's uh, let's jump in uh, with that little introduction. Um, here is episode three on public art from the podcast. This is her place. One block north at Pioneer Park on 400 West in Salt Lake City, a mural with fine art stencil graffiti on a parking garage wall may catch your eye. You might find yourself thinking it looks strangely similar to, but not quite exactly like, the album cover for Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by the Beatles. You would be right. The mural called SLC Pepper is a redo and update of the album cover that Utah artist Jan Haworth famously co-created and won a Grammy for with her then-husband Peter Blake. Forty years after the album cover came out, it came up in the news again at a time when the question of representation in art was starting to take on new meaning. So Jan Haworth decided to revisit the album cover in the form of a new mural. In 2003, Rolling Stones did an article listing the greatest albums of all time, and Sgt. Pepper was the number one. And I was well aware of the fact that that was the music, it was not the cover. But taking that on, it seemed to me that it needed analysis. And in 2004, we began to put together a mural project for Salt Lake that was called SLC Pepper, which had about 30 artists worked on making stencils of an alternative cover. So the alternative cover was to be 50% women and to have greater ethnic diversity within it. And it was also citing people like 
Tom Waits and Gorbachev and people who actually made contributions to the arts. That resulted in what you see today on 400 West. But like all public art, both the Beatles album cover and the SLC Pepper mural reflect the time and context of when they were made. Recently, the SLC Pepper mural has taken on the life of its community and place, reflecting contemporary events and conversations. A few weeks after the death of George Floyd, someone painted his face and the face of Breonna Taylor in black stenciled outlines at the top of the mural with the words, Black Lives Matter. When I asked Jan Haworth if she had seen the edition, she responded, no problem at all with the add-on, thinking too they pretty much risked their lives to do it. On today's podcast, we're exploring the role of public art and talking about three muralists whose work has transformed the visual arts landscape in Utah. Minerva Tyker, a 20th century painter with Mormon pioneer roots, who was the first woman to paint a mural in a temple of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Ruby Chacon, a Chicana artist and teacher whose murals dot her native Salt Lake City and across the West. Jan Haworth, a pop artist and co-creator of the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album cover, who is working on a mural featuring Utah women that will be unveiled later this year. We'll learn about how each of these women's identities and histories influenced the art they created and continue to create, and how their art has changed their communities. Ready, Tom? I'm ready. Okay. Welcome to This Is Her Place, the new podcast that tells the remarkable stories of Utah women past and present. I'm Naomi Watkins. And I'm Tom Williams. We'll be introducing you to poets and politicians, artists and activists, healers and homemakers, compelling women, women who inspire us with the unique ways each of them has truly made Utah her place. We really appreciate you joining us and ask that you subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So today we're talking about women who have created public art, murals specifically, in Utah. And when we say public art, we're talking about art in public spaces, art that says something about a place and its people, whether it's a historical marker or something more abstract, and it makes a place more unique, gives it meaning, expresses community values, or at least starts conversations about those values. Right, and that can be an ongoing discussion about what values to represent and whose stories to tell, which is part of why we're seeing some communities and cities choosing to tear down certain public art monuments right now and build up others. And just to give us a little more background as we get started, I want to point out a trend in public art. Traditionally, starting with ancient Greece, public art was a way to commemorate important events or people, usually through monuments and sculptures. And over time, that purpose expanded. In the early 1900s, the Association for Public Art in Philadelphia had a mission to promote and foster the beautiful through architecture, improvements, and the city plan. Nowadays, public art isn't just about what government and nonprofit agencies decide. It's becoming more democratized among do-it-yourselfers, community groups, and even corporations. And as part of that, murals and other types of street art are having a moment in cities across the world, including in Utah. Yes, and we'll look at that a little more and about the question of who and what are represented in public art. With three women, we're profiling today, starting with Minerva Teichert. And you may be familiar with Minerva Teichert's religious art and her depictions of pioneers if you are a part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints faith community. For example, her painting, The Miracle of the Goals, shows a young woman kneeling with her arms dramatically outstretched, wearing a red dress. By the way, that also happened to be Minerva Teichert's favorite color. 
Her eyes looked to heaven as seagulls arrived to devour the hordes of crickets that had devastated the Mormon pioneers' crops. Yeah, and another famous one is her painting of the biblical parable of the lost lamb, showing Jesus tenderly carrying a black lamb while surrounded by 99 white lambs. It's full of these soft blues and greens and whites with a beautiful sunset reflecting on some nearby water. People today know Minerva Tykert for this Latter-day Saint-focused art. But when she was alive, she was better known for her large-scale mural work on public and religious buildings. And her creative process for these murals might surprise you. The kitchen ran perpendicular to the living room where she did all of her painting on a large wall where she tacked them there. And they shared a doorway. So she'd cook something on the stove, stir it a little bit, and then she'd just walk around the corner and do some, put a few paint strokes in, then go back and stir some more food. Or, and that's, you know, she just multitasked. On that big wall, it was not big enough for all of her murals. So she'd have to fold them and paint parts at a time. And to see how they looked at a distance, she inverted a pair of binoculars. And then when she was finished, she'd have Grandpa tack it to the outside of the house and she'd stand there and look at it. That's Marion Wardle. She's an art historian and granddaughter of rancher and artist Minerva Teichert, whose multitasking and ingenuity resulted in the production of a large body of artwork, including more than 400 murals, on her modest ranch in Cokeville, Wyoming. These works stood out from the typical LDS art of the time, offering a new visual landscape with different colors, imagery, and subjects. Minerva Teichert was born in 1888 in Ogden, Utah, a descendant of Mormon pioneers who explored the countryside of her family's ranch in Idaho on Jem, her horse, with a sketchbook in hand. At age 14, she worked as a nursemaid in San Francisco. She took art classes there, visited the Mark Hopkins Institute of Art, where she saw great art for the very first time, and she saved her money for tuition at the Art Institute of Chicago by teaching school and pitching hay. Later, she also attended art school in New York City. When she was in art school in New York and learning how to paint murals, and she had learned about murals in Chicago as well, mural painting was considered to be the highest form of art in the schools. Her teachers and others were talking about what an important form of art it was to educate the public. It was a phrase that they used. Murals were especially popular in the 1920s and 1930s due to important figures like Diego Rivera, a Mexican muralist. Like all public art, even now, the intent behind the work and the messages in the murals reflected the hopes of the time. Men were generally selected for public art commissions, but Minerva Teichert and several women artists in Utah had a champion of the arts in Alice Merrill Horn, the woman who started the first state-run arts agency in the nation. The reason that Grandma decided to go to see Alice Merrill Horn about selling her art and about painting more murals was because in the 1930s they were in danger of losing the ranch during the Great Depression. So she went down and unrolled some of these large canvases on Alice Merrill Horn's floor. Alice Merrill Horn was the dealer of all important Utah artists at the time, and Horn immediately became her dealer and started marketing her works. So in the 1930s alone, Alice Merrill Horn placed 60 of Grandma's murals in public buildings in Utah, Wyoming, and Idaho. She painted South High School in Salt Lake, bought 12 of her murals. 
and they were Western themes and native peoples. One of Minerva Tyker's teachers, a famous portraitist named Robert Henry, also had a great impact on her artistic style and content. He taught his students to use large brushes and loose strokes, something that makes Minerva Tyker's paintings instantly recognizable. He asked her, has anyone ever told your great Mormon story? Not to suit me, she replied. To this he said, good heavens, girl, what a chance. Ought to be a Mormon. You'll do it well. Minerva remembered, I felt that I had been commissioned. And then in the 40s, she started selling them to the church. The church, being the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, and the majority religion in Utah. It was mainly religious work she was doing. Alice Merrill Horn, because she was so well connected and knew everybody, and she'd even been in the legislature herself, so she knew all sorts of people. And in the church, she was very well connected. And she would go to the president of the Sunday school and say, we need this Tykert painting, how much can you give? And then she'd go to the Relief Society. Or she went to the auxiliaries until she had enough money to buy the painting. And that's just the kind of person that she was. And that's why the church has a large collection of her religious works, and some that were very uh, well-known in their day and are still well-known. And that's when she got the commission to do the Manti Temple World Room, which was a dream come true for her. And she was the first woman to ever be commissioned to do temple murals. Muralists painted walls inside LDS temples from floor to ceiling with scenes depicting the stories that were part of the temple ceremony, which involved several rooms that participants moved between. These murals would count as public art, but public with a caveat. Not everyone in Manti would see these murals. You'd need to be a good standing member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to get into the temple. Even still, that would have been a fairly good number of people in Sanpeet Valley who would see her murals in the world room. And so they'd begin in the garden room that represented creation and Adam and Eve. Then they would move to the world room. That was leaving the garden behind and entering the lone and dreary world. Well, most artists who depicted that for other temples, and still do today, they depict desert scenes with wild animals and an inhospitable place. But that's not what she portrayed. As you progress through the world room, you're leaving Babylon, the world behind, and there are these processions of people moving toward the next doorway where you'll go into a different room. And as you walk in, the wall to your right is a procession of people, and they're the wealthy of the world. And there are kings and queens and priests and well-heeled and notable people. And they're all marching away from Babylon in this big procession. But along the bottom of this mural, there are shadowy figures of beggars who are begging for help from these well-heeled people. And there'll be a king who tosses a few coins over there without even looking. To her, the lone and dreary world was man's inhumanity to man. And that's what comes across in this mural. It wasn't just her depiction of the lone and dreary world that was different from her predecessors. Unlike her male counterparts, Minerva Tykert placed women front and center in her work. Her style differed too, and it wasn't always liked. The brethren, the ones who decided who was going to paint that mural, they were not real excited about it at first. And there are a lot of people who prefer very tightly painted 
or drawn works where every detail is rendered. And she always said that when the story was told, the painting was finished. So she didn't put in a lot of detail. And at one point, the presiding bishopric wrote to her after she thought she was done with that world room. It was a huge room, and she painted it in 23 days, and then she thought she was done. But they wanted her to come back and put more detail in. They said in a letter to her they did not mean to paint the eyelashes on the faces, but they wanted more detail, and they were specific in what they wanted detail in. She went back twice and put more detail in. Then Alice Merrill Horn went down when it was finished to see it, and she was thrilled. She had helped secure the commission, but she died shortly after that. And so that changed everything, not only for Grandma, but for other artists in Utah as well. After completing the Manti Temple murals, Minerva Teichert turned her attention to painting scenes from the Book of Mormon, a religious text of her faith. She'd had this dream for so long, and she made small sketches, oil on paper, of what these works would look like. Minerva Teichert used live models, often her neighbors and children and grandchildren who were working in the fields. She dressed them in costumes based on sketches she had done while traveling in Mexico and painted backdrops. She finished a set of 42 murals at age 64 and had big ideas about how they might accompany the Book of Mormon text or be used as slides by missionaries around the world or to be sold as a book of paintings. And she took them to the brethren to look at them, and they were not interested. Murals were out of favor, and Grandma was out of favor. And it's my personal opinion that if the Alice Merrill Horn had lived, the church would have wanted them. (laughs) I mean, she had that kind of influence. The Brethren, the leadership of the LDS Church, instead commissioned Arnold Freeberg to illustrate the Book of Mormon. He was an artist who painted with much more detail than Minerva Teichert and who depicted the Book of Mormon characters, primarily men, as bionic muscle men, hyper-masculine Hulk-type heroes. Here's Heather Belknap, Associate Professor of Art History and European Studies Coordinator at Brigham Young University. Many of us have wondered, what would it have meant if Minerva Teichert had been the one to illustrate the Book of Mormon, right? I mean, how might that have changed people's perceptions about what it means to be devout or heroic or whatever? She tended to not focus as much on warlike imagery, paddle imagery. There's more nuance to the way that she represents both men and women, which I think could be really helpful within LDS culture. I mean, not only is it like exclusionary for women, right, who have a hard time identifying, but it's got to be pretty intimidating for most of the you know, men out there who are reading these stories and looking at these representations and thinking, I can't identify with that. I don't look like that. I don't, you know, I'm not that kind of hero. So I, I kind of think maybe we'd have a kinder and gentler way of maybe approaching the Book of Mormon and that history. In 1969, Minerva Teichert gave the Book of Mormon murals to Brigham Young University for free and with no promise of publication. After a very brief exhibition, BYU placed them in storage. This treatment of her art varied greatly from decades past. Previously, she had donated many paintings to BYU in exchange for tuition for her children and for others in the Cokeville community. Again, this is Marion Wardle, Minerva Teichert's granddaughter. She wrote a letter to my mother saying, Well, I finally gave up. I gave those paintings to BYU. 
she was very disappointed, but she wasn't getting the acclaim that she was in the 30s or now. So I remember I was, uh, I think, a freshman then at BYU, and there was an exhibit of the Book of Mormon paintings of this gift. And I went to it, and there was a guest book, and I looked at it, and nobody liked them. There was, I finally saw one positive comment. So it wasn't even valued. Now it is. Just four months after Minerva Tyker's death in 1976, an article in the LDS Church's magazine, The Ensign, featured four of her Book of Mormon paintings. A feature article on her followed two months later, leading to renewed interest in her work. And since then, her works have been brought out of basements and attics, dusted off, and are now widely sold and distributed as prints. Some even hang in LDS church buildings. On the BYU campus, her paintings are now prominently displayed, and her originals, when they do come up for sale, which is rare, fetch a hefty price. I think that one reason she's valued so much is because of the stories she told of women. And so she was a woman who had become a successful artist through hard work and loving to paint. So I really love hearing about how Minerva Teichert's art was layered and symbolic. Like she didn't paint a literal desert, but instead she depicted people treating each other inhumanely. And that's really powerful. Yes. And uh, you remember Heather Belknap pointed out that a lot of LDS people were raised with Book of Mormon art and other art, too, that was less symbolic and more literal and masculine. We'll never know how attitudes today might have turned out differently if Minerva's paintings were used instead or if murals like hers have been painted in more temples. But it's never too late to start being more inclusive in public art, of course. For sure. And that's what our next profile is about. So we're going to talk about Ruby Chacon, a Utah artist whose Chicana roots run centuries deep in this area. Her life passion is broadening what and who we represent in our public art. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're featuring a full episode from the This Is Her Place podcast series. You can find them at thisisherplace.org. The podcast tells the remarkable stories of Utah women past and present in all their diversity. And we're going to go to break now. And when we come back, as you heard there, we're going to take up the story of Ruby Chacon, a Chicana artist and teacher whose murals dot her native Salt Lake City in the West. We'll also hear the story of Jen Haworth, a pop artist and co-creator of the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album cover, and whose mural featuring Utah women was unveiled last year in Salt Lake City. More following this break. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for joining us. Today we're featuring a full episode from the This Is Her Place podcast series. And at the end of this episode, later in the hour, we'll be talking once again to podcast co-host Naomi Watkins. The intersection of 500 North and 600 West in Salt Lake City is quiet, with a small roundabout and a narrow one-story building on the northeast corner. Kitsal Imports, the sign reads, it's a Hispanic grocery store, and on its long whitewashed western wall just above a scraggly patch of grass is a bright colored mural reaching from the ground to the top of the building. It's a little trippy because the mural, which is on the side of the building, depicts the storefront that is in fact just around the corner on the front of the building, and it depicts people gathered there. 
a man playing a saxophone, a woman carrying a basket on her head, and in the bottom right corner, a woman with long black hair and a flowing red dress. Tendrils of light emanate from her head and upper body, and a small child clings to her leg. This is Siwakoa, an indigenous goddess who protected her children from danger, and the mural was the first outdoor mural that artist Ruby Chacon ever painted. It was completed in 2004, but the idea for it came from a personal journey to learn about her family history that started years earlier. Ruby Chacon was about to graduate from college with a degree in art when her family was devastated first by the tragic death of her three-year-old nephew, and then by media accounts that distorted the facts of the story. The stories that were written about him were almost, in a way, where they were holding my sister culpable for his death, like she was an irresponsible parent, even though we were the victims of that crime. Other members of Ruby Chacon's Chicano family had been victimized in the past, and some of them warned her family about the biased and inaccurate stories that were likely to be published. Because I had several other family members who were victims of crimes and A lot of times people like to make it easy and say that it it was gang affiliated or some sort of stereotypical story that makes it so these aren't real victims of real crimes that almost like we deserved because we were part of that environment. So when it happened, it really was devastating. Around that same time, Ruby Chacon attended a Stop the Violence March and heard the names of several domestic violence victims she knew. She began to wonder how the warm, safe upbringing she remembered had turned into so many tragedies. I just felt so angry and I wanted to fight back with my degree and what I learned, with the skills that I learned. But I really didn't know how because I didn't really know my family history. I didn't know my identity. I didn't realize that it was shaped by other people until I went to go and visit my grandfather, who lived about five hours away from us in Monticello, Utah. And I asked him, when did we migrate from Mexico to the U.S.? He told me, we're not from Mexico. We're from here. The border crossed us. We didn't cross the border. (laughs) And I just remember thinking my whole life, you know, growing up in the 70s and 80s in the school system, kids say racist things. You know, sometimes they might say, you know, go back to Mexico. I did think, I did assume that we migrated because those were the stories. Those were the things that were being told to me by the dominant culture. If we were Mexican, we must be from Mexico. So I just assumed we were. I just remember feeling like my whole life, I bought into this narrative that defined my identity that was not even true, that was a myth. The truth was Ruby Chacon's grandfather came to Utah from New Mexico with his family during the Great Depression and helped settle Southern Utah building one of the first cabins in the town of Monticello. Yeah, there were so many stories that I found that I didn't even know about. I didn't know that my dad and his siblings, they were all, they were segregated in the schools. And my dad said it was really difficult to get through school because of the racism there. They were, you know, corporally punished for speaking Spanish. She also learned that one of her aunts opened the first Mexican restaurant in Monticello, Utah. But it didn't stay open long because she was diagnosed with cancer, one of several in Ruby Chacon's family who were downwinders, those who lived downwind of nuclear testing in Utah and suffered from long-lasting health issues as a result. That same aunt was also the first female mine worker in Utah. But Ruby Chacon also learned about much more ancient history. 
And I just remember going to Mesa Verde and seeing the Anasazi and learning about the Anasazis and how that is a Navajo name that means the ancient other one and all reality. They're the Pueblo Indians and thinking, could my ancestors be connected with them? Just thinking about the whole implication of having both the colonization of the Spaniards mixed with our native background made it that we've been here for thousands of years on one side and 400 years or more on the Spanish side. It struck Ruby Chacon deeply that she had never learned about this history in all her years of public education, from kindergarten through high school and college. She didn't want the same thing to happen to her nieces and others who came after her. I just realized that if I don't tell our story the way I knew how through the arts, that it was going to get lost and more tragedies would happen. And that brings us back to the mural on the side of the Quetzal Imports building. Ruby Chacon was inspired by Mexican outdoor muralists who retold stories from an indigenous perspective. And she wanted to paint her own, but she had only done indoor murals and paintings. I just wanted to do one because that whole idea of being able to do a public art piece where my mom, who, you know, only went to the second grade, could read it. You know, it's something where people who do not need a formal education, they can read a mural. (laughs) Or people who speak a different language can read the mural, you know, through images. And so I wanted to do the history of La Llorona because when my nephew died, I felt like my sister, it was almost like she was turned into La Llorona. La Llorona, some listeners may know, is a figure from Mexican folklore. My mom said that La Llorona had six children and that she drowned them in the river and that you can hear her cries and that she once heard La Llorona. And then I learned about the story of La Llorona in Chicano Studies class in college for the first time. And I remember thinking, oh, I thought that was a true story and it happened in Salt Lake at the Jordan River. But apparently it was like everybody knew that whole tale. And then when my nephew died and The way they wrote stories about my sister was like they turned her into La Llorona. The story of La Llorona can be traced back to La Malinche, an indigenous woman who lived in the 1500s and was enslaved by Hernando Cortés, one of the first Spanish conquistadores, and became his interpreter and later mistress. According to legend, La Malinche drowned her twin boys because of a prophecy that if Cortés took them back to Spain, they would return and destroy all her people. This story of La Malinche may have been based on an even older indigenous story. Before that, she was Siwakoa, an indigenous goddess who was looking out for her children, warning her children of great disaster. I interpreted that being as she was protecting her children because she was warning them when great disaster was coming, she would appear. Ruby Chacon got funding from the Utah Arts Council, now the Utah Division of Arts and Museums, to create the mural. And the owner of Quetzal Imports agreed to have it painted on the building. I told him what I wanted to do. And he's like, oh, no, you can't do La Llorona. You're going to scare the children, you know. And so I'm like, oh, no. okay, so I'm not going to do La Llorona. I'm just going to do the goddess Siokoa. And he's like, oh, okay, you can do that. (laughs) Ruby Chacon recruited neighborhood youth who were part of a court-appointed program to beautify the community to help her with the mural. That's what launched me. And then the Utah Arts Council then right after hired me like the month after to do another mural to interpret the golden rule. And I did it right next to it. And I just made the design flow. So it's actually, those are two different murals, but actually looks like one because 
there are two different funding sources and with two different ideas, concepts. You can see a photo of both murals at our website, thisisherplace.org. Since then, Ruby Chacon has designed many other murals. Her process involves connecting with people in a neighborhood through surveys, focus groups, and conversations to get a sense of how people want their story to be told. She also consults with members of any indigenous cultures she might be representing, so she can avoid appropriation, get help deciding what to include, and present things respectfully. She identifies a common thread and brings all the ideas together into a design. The end result is something that feels very different from the smaller paintings she's done. Public art is just, it's for more people. Like it's just for a painting, it can be a little bit more exclusive, I feel. I mean, you know, I love doing them for people, but it is exclusive because you have to be able to afford a piece. And as far as galleries are concerned, you know, we, I didn't grow up going to galleries or museums, you know, I didn't, it was not accessible to the communities I grew up around and a lot of low-income families that don't go to these places. Public art, on the other hand, you could have it in the communities where low-income families live and they can take ownership, they can own it and be a part of it more so than galleries and museums. Growing up in Salt Lake City, art for Ruby Chacon was less about galleries and more about losing herself in the flow of creating something. She asked for crayons for every birthday and Christmas because she knew they were one of the few things her family could afford. You know, when you live in a small house and you have like a ton of kids and cousins, everybody in one house, I didn't have a bedroom <laughs> until I was a teenager. Like I slept on the sofa and then had my dresser in the hallway. So it's, it gets loud because everybody has their own music and everybody has their TV show and it's loud. And so it's impossible to concentrate. But I, was, I would always lose myself in drawing. The only way I could block the chaos or make sense of my world it was by drawing. Very few members of Ruby Chacon's family finished high school, and institutionalized racism was one reason. My story was that my counselor consistently told me that I was never going to graduate, so she didn't know, why did I keep trying? Everybody was looking to me to graduate, and I, I knew I wasn't going to because my counselor kept telling me I wasn't going to, but I just pretended and just kept going to school so I wouldn't disappoint my family. <laughs> When I was a senior, I saw the list of seniors who were going to graduate, and my name was on the list. And I thought they made a mistake, but I was like, I'm not gonna tell them that they made a mistake, but I'm just gonna graduate, you know? But I think about it now, but I know why she was telling me that. Cause you know, she didn't want me to, she didn't want us there. So we were being pushed out for different reasons. We weren't quote unquote illegal, right? But we were treated in a way. Because of experiences like that, Ruby Chacon came to see the immigrant community as her people, and her art became more political. I, you know, seeing the mistreatment of undocumented communities and feeling like, even though I was born here in the U.S., I always felt like I was either a second-class citizen because I wasn't a quote-unquote immigrant, or at least I thought I was. And that whole experience of being pushed out of schools and, you know, pre-civil rights with my family and all the terrible things that happened to them. Ruby Chacon's childhood experiences have come full circle. She now lives in Sacramento, where she teaches 6th through 12th graders about muralism. Her students include immigrants, refugees, African-Americans, and some who are experiencing homelessness. The students choose topics, research, and teach each other, then design and paint a mural together. 
They were about to create their first mural on the theme of Black Lives Matter, but the coronavirus put their plans on hold. Because some of them have never, like you can tell they have had no art whatsoever. And then also I feel like that mentorship is part of the process. We all create art drawings. We look at the research, we create drawings of a whole bunch of drawings, and then I put them together in a design. Sometimes I'll, we'll draw on top of each other's drawings to kind of like teach them how to collaborate because that's what it, what happens is you're expanding each other's ideas. We just take a picture, a really nice picture, and then project it onto the wall and then trace the design and then paint it. I teach the students my process and then they, they come up with the concept and they come up with all the drawings and I have nothing to do with like any of the drawings. So in, in that way, it's all student created. Ruby Chacon has gotten all kinds of feedback on her Salt Lake murals. As she was installing one at a track station on North Temple and 8th West, a passerby stopped and said, where are all the white people? And okay, so it's a mix of people and it represents that neighborhood. I just kind of laughed because I'm, you know, I'm used to that, it's all right. More often the response is positive. People will take pictures of my artwork and tag me in Instagram and just, I mean, I've had people say how much representation matters. And I feel like if you're authentic and real in what you're doing, that it translates to other people that may not come from certain communities. You know, we have our differences, but we also have our commonalities. And so I think if you're real to that, then I think a lot of times people can relate to it. I think just that, that people will feel seen and visible. And I think not only that, but also pro- to inspire them to tell their own story through however they know how, through their own medium, that people will feel empowered, empowered to tell their own stories and seen. And that right there, telling stories through art so people feel seen and stories are remembered, is Ruby Chacon's passion. I kind of feel like what saved me and who I am is the ability to have a voice through my work, to be able to counter what people were telling us, to be able to fight back through the way I knew how, not through my fist, but through my voice. And that's Ruby Chacon. Like I said, we have a list of her Utah murals with addresses on our website, so you can go track them down and see them in person. It's actually a really great, safe, socially distanced activity for a pandemic. That's great. A public art tour. I guess you could drive or bike or walk. And we also have information about Utah murals by Jan Haworth, the Fauna woman we're profiling on today's podcast. Yeah, we talked a little bit about the SLC Pepper mural at the top of the show and the story of how Jan Haworth came to co-create the initial Sgt. Pepper album cover for the Beatles in the first place is also a fun and interesting story. It all started when Jan Haworth was living in London as a young woman in the 1960s studying art. Her work was displayed in several exhibits, including one at the Institute of Contemporary Art, and she was meeting all sorts of other artists. Early in the sort of arc of the Beatles becoming so well-known, there was a photographer, Robert Friedman. He said, oh, these lads are coming down from Liverpool and they don't know anybody in London. You know, they have quite a a fan following, but they're performing in uh, Luton. And did we want to go to see them? We said, sure, we'll come with them. He said, yeah, maybe you can take them to some of the clubs after the concert. And so we did. And so we met them. I think it was the second concert they'd done in London. And then we took them to a couple of clubs. 
the first club we went to was kind of interesting because we went to, I think it was called the White Elephant. And we went to the door and there was a bouncer there. And we said, you know, we started to go in and he stopped us and we said, oh, we're just coming in for the evening. And he said, no, you have to be members. And we said, well, we're with this group that has just come to London. They've just done a concert and, you know, we're not members. Couldn't we still come in? I mean, we're the right age and all the rest of it. And he said, no, you can't. And then I think it was Ringo said, oh, wait, they're playing our, that's our, that's us. We are singing that song that was on in the club. And the bouncer said, you still can't come in. (laughs) So we didn't make it into that one. So then we went to a much more sleazy one called the Flamingo. Had a little dance, kind of bopped about. That bopping about led to Jan Haworth and her now ex-husband Peter Blake designing the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper album cover. The original concept was for the Beatles to be dressed in their brass band uniforms and appear at an official ceremony in a park. Band members John Lennon, Paul McCartney, and George Harrison plus Jan Haworth, Peter Blake, and their gallery owner, Robert Fraser, all submitted a list of characters they wanted to see in attendance. Jan Haworth and Peter Blake then pasted life-size black-and-white photographs of all the approved characters onto hardboard, which Jan subsequently hand-tinted. There were a lot of kind of maverick people on the album, and it had more weight. You know, the Sgt. Pepper cover was fairly light. It was uh, celebrity-based. There were a few oddities within it. There were potential disasters within it. John had chosen Hitler. Imagine the story of Sergeant Pepper if Hitler had been on the cover. We took him out, obviously. I don't think it's a perfect cover by any means. It stands for our own naivete at at that time. I mean, the Beatles only chose just over a third of the heads that are there. So we have to live with the fact that that's a very, some of our choices were very poor. The only women that appear on the cover, Peter and I chose. Half of the women are fictional. That tells you how dumb we were really (laughs) at that period of time, you know. So yeah, there's some questions there. (laughs) And that isn't the only question about representation that has followed the album cover. As long as Peter and I were married, we, he and I both acknowledged that we both worked on the cover. Subsequently, when we got divorced, I no longer had worked on the cover in his memory. <laughs> Someone in England who kind of defends my position on the cover, that every time they give all full credit to Peter, she sort of stands up in the audience and says, there was a woman that worked on this cover, etc., and she was an American, and how come you're not giving you know, all that stuff? Anyway, she uh, emailed me and she said, hey, you were just a question on Mastermind. It's who with Jan Haworth designed the Sgt. Pepper cover? And my first thing to that was, oh, wow, this is cool. (laughs) And my second thing was, I can see the people making the question saying, hmm, let's see, the topic is the Beatles. Um, Let's do, who besides Peter Blake designed the Sgt. Pepper cover? Oh, no, that'd really be too hard. That'd be so hard. Nobody would get it. Jan Haworth's community-minded and collaborative approach to art and mural making, as well as her nonplussed attitude towards stardom and fame, has roots in her youth growing up around famous Hollywood actors and artists. I grew up in California, and both my parents were artists. So my mother was a ceramicist and then later a printmaker, and my father was in the motion picture industry as a production designer. 
And uh, so I had this kind of, you know, these two very dynamic parents that were in different spheres, but both of them making stuff out of nothing, you know, out of very nothing. Um, so if my father needed to make, I don't know, a rock, <laughs> it was fabricated in the plaster department. And so I was very used to that is what life was about. You made stuff out of stuff, you know. Jan Haworth's feminism and her desires to be an artist percolated from watching her mother and other women work, even when the art world was heavily male-dominated. My mother's friends were artists, were, you know, working women who earned their own living and had their own cars and had their own lives, really. And in my father's sphere, they were actresses, uh, designers, you know, costume designers and people who worked in the film industry. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think that backdrop is very important as well, because I knew I could do anything and I assumed that I would. So, yeah. She took her artistic talents and dreams first to UCLA, and then she moved across the pond to London to study at the Courtauld Institute of Art and the Slade School of Fine Art. The latter institution is especially known for its conservative atmosphere and culture. The gallery I was with, there were only two women in the gallery that were part of the kind of show base that was there. And and for some reason, it just didn't occur to me that much that, you know, that there was this terrible kind of inequality. There were things that were little spikes that uh, a male student might say, well, women just don't understand paint. <laughs> you think, oh, really? Okay. In spite of the inequality, these landmark exhibitions positioned Jan Haworth as a leading figure in the British pop culture movement and landed her and Peter Blake the Sgt. Pepper album cover. As time passed, Jan Haworth moved to Utah after several trips to Sundance. She fell in love with the state's blue skies, fabulous light, distinct four seasons, and easy access to mountain trails, all stark contrast to living in the UK. Jan Haworth's jovialness and playfulness continued to show up in her work. Life-size hand-sewn donuts or flowers or floppy old ladies made out of textiles, for example. But murals are currently her favorite medium, and they prove the most challenging. I love doing the murals, I have to say, because I, I love the premise that it's art for free, that it isn't going to be there forever, that, you know, you have to take it as it is now because it's probably transient. I love the scale. I love the challenge of the scale. I once did a 48-foot giant for Madame Tussauds. This next mural we're doing, it's going to be so big, and I don't know what a, a seven-story building does to the thing that you're working on. It's going to be kind of, kind of scary. Yeah. The next mural that Jan Haworth is currently working on, entitled Utah Women, is a spin-off of another mural she created called Work in Progress a collaborative project that involved over 120 people making stencil portraits of women from around the world who were catalysts for change in the fields of social activism, the arts, and science. I saw work in progress when it was displayed at the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art in 2017, and I felt surrounded and welcomed by this crowd of women, like I could be one of them. But I also remember feeling embarrassed and angry that I could not identify so many of them. And I think that's the point. You have to come up to it and think, Oh my gosh, I do not know my history, full stop. I knew a lot about, you know, women writers, and I knew a lot about women in the arts, but I knew nothing about women scientists, you know, mathematicians, people who were successful in government, blah, 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 blah. I didn't know anything, and I thought, this is terrible. <laughs> I don't know my history. For eight years, I tried to get someone to help me fund making this mural. And finally, in 2016, 
as we were ramping up to what we thought was Hillary Clinton and the first woman president in the United States, Diane Stewart and I sat down and I mentioned it to her and she said, we have to do this now. And Trump was elected. And I can tell you, you know, the morning I went to look at the mural and I just was tears rolling down my cheeks right after the election thinking, it's the mural is squashed. This mural is defeated. And it suddenly, it was like the mural just went flip into a kind of, it was like a barricade and a protest, no longer the mural that we thought it was. And just like the art itself reflects contemporary conversations and events, the artistic process is impacted by these things as well. When Jan Haworth originally conceptualized work in progress, she imagined that the collaborators would be all women, but it was men who first volunteered to participate, and so she shifted her plan. Jan Haworth hopes to unveil the Utah Women mural in late August in tandem with the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. It will definitely have a large audience. This collaborative mural focusing solely on women in the Beehive State will dwarf all of Jan's previous work and will be placed on an east-facing wall just off Main Street and 100 South in Salt Lake City's historic downtown corridor. I personally wanted to have something to do with that building for a long time because it's a big blank building with really long sight lines to it. And so it's going to be, we think it's, there are going to be nine panels that are 10 foot wide and 50 feet tall and some 200 heads. Working on a large scale mural during the COVID-19 pandemic also brings a unique set of challenges and circumstances. We began last summer to have community workshops. Thank heaven we did. We did half of them, a little more than half. And then we were hit by the pandemic, followed by the earthquake. We no longer could do this as community workshops. We'd have to do it one-on-one and one-on-one online with some support on our website. I decided to write to someone who was in Milan and ask her if she had time and energy and uh, willingness to make a stencil. And she jumped on it. And I thought, well, maybe that isn't so out of line then and I wrote to a friend in Australia and asked the same thing and gradually wrote to people in different countries in Europe and also states outside of Utah. So there'll be about 20 portraits, maybe 22, 23, that are done outside the state. So it was to be just a Utah-centric project, but I felt that I wanted to reflect this idea of the, the fact that the whole world was experiencing something at the same time, which has never happened before, and that it was dire, and that we needed to bring those stories into focus through this project. Bringing unknown stories to light and pushing against social norms through art has long been Jan Haworth's focus. And like all artists, she hopes that her work makes an impact. What has been overlooked? What has been forgotten? Who is underserved? Why is this stupid idea considered important, I'm going to go in that direction. So usually an artist is moving against the tide, or you could say the artist is the canary in the coal mine. They're speaking about something that the rest of the population either hasn't noticed or doesn't care about yet. And we hope that those savants or shaman are always in our society. They make noises at the most inappropriate times and are completely unpopular. And then 10 years later, they're cited as having said something clever or meaningful. So I think I have a role 
I'm one of many artists who make many things, and if they break through somewhere, that's important. So, Naomi, it strikes me that both Ruby Chacon and Jan Haworth talked about how public art is different from gallery art in the sense that it's for the entire community. And there's a different audience and a different purpose. They both also mentioned the collaboration is an important part of their process. These murals really do reflect an entire community. Yes, and that's why it's really so significant that the faces of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor were added to the SLC Pepper mural. I mean, I really think it shows how art evolves with the community and how it reflects its values as a community changes and it matures, just as we were talking about at the top of the show. And I also think it's worth noting that all three of these women in different ways had to fight to have their voices heard and to have their art included or credited to them. And as far as giving credit where credit is earned, I hope listeners will keep an eye out for the Utah Women Mural when it's unveiled next month and take it as a chance to learn more about the many contributions of women throughout Utah's history. I'm really excited to see it. We'd like to thank today's guests and thank you for joining us on This Is Her Place. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please take a minute to rate and subscribe to the show so you'll never miss out on future episodes. To find out more about the amazing women mentioned on today's episode, visit our website at www.thisisherplace.org. While you're there, subscribe to our newsletter for a ton of insider content. This Is Her Place relies on listener support. If you'd like to play a part in the creation of future episodes, please click the Donate tab on our website to contribute. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at This Is Her Place Podcast and at Twitter handle This Is Her Place. Questions? Comments? We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at thisisherplace at gmail.com. And perhaps we'll discuss your thoughts on a future episode. This Is Her Place is made possible through the generous support of Janet Dana Stowell, Gary Anderson, the Year of the Women Initiative at Utah State University, and the Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture at USU. This episode was written by Allison Pond and Naomi Watkins. Our executive producer is Patrick Mason. This is Her Place is produced by Allison Pond with research assistance provided by Meg Rasmussen and editing by Dorothy Abrams. This podcast was recorded on Goshu, Navajo, Paiute, Shoshone, and Ute land. Our theme is composed by Lindsay Wheeler. Additional music provided by Blue Dot Sessions. La Llorona performed by Stefan Shuga. We'll be back again soon with another episode of This Is Her Place. Well, we had Naomi Watkins, the podcast co-host, with us at the beginning of this episode, and uh, now we want to bring her back at the end. Uh, Thanks for joining us again, Naomi. Yes, thank you. We've heard episode three from the podcast series, This Is Her Place. Of course, This Is Her Place uh, tells the stories of Utah women past and present in all their diversity. So, uh, listening to this podcast once again, this this episode, uh, what jumps out at you, Naomi? Um, the issue of representation, you know, all three artists focus on representing their own stories and the stories of others who are underrepresented in their art. But I also was struck by how all of them had to fight 
and struggle to get their work represented and acknowledged as well, right? There are different time periods, but that still is um, an issue at play in all of their stories. Uh, yeah, and these are three fascinating women. Uh, of course, Minerva Tackert from from the past, right? Uh, so we went to, I think in one case, her well, it was her granddaughter, if I remember correctly, and and then an, an yeah. expert on on the art of that period. Uh, but you got to talk directly with with two of the artists here. Tell me a little bit about that. So Jan and Ruby both, you know, are obviously contemporary to today, um, still producing art and. You know, it's interesting talking to Jan as she's working on that large-scale mural that's now in downtown Salt Lake City, so you can go and see that even now. But now, you know, it's it's up. It's there. It's done, right? And to um, to revisit this, this story after the fact, I think, is really interesting as she's still struggling to figure out the, how to achieve the vision that she's had, right? Yeah, certainly true. And some, just some uh, good stories, impactful stories from Ruby Chacon. Really enjoyed that. Yeah, and not knowing about her own, her own heritage, right? And how her journey to learn about herself and her ancestors really propelled her into becoming an artist and to finding her own voice. And I think that's, like, I mean, that's really inspiring, right? To like learn about your own past and what will that propel you to do? Find that interesting. Yeah, yeah it is fascinating. So, Naomi, I ask you this every time, but <laughs> um, I think it's important to to treat this. You know, this this podcast, uh, you know, explores uh, the diverse uh, stories of Utah women, past and present. Why is this important? Why are we doing this? Well, because these stories are often unknown, right? And I, you know, as a woman living in Utah, I think it's and a transplant to Utah in particular. It's interesting and inspiring to learn about the women who came before and who are currently doing really fascinating and inspiring things that helped me soldier on, so to speak, right? Particularly when faced with adversity. And you're working on season two. Anything you want to highlight from season two for us? We are working on an episode about ranching that will feature Josie Bassett, who is famous for dating Butch Cassidy, you know, the famous outlaw. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're working on one about the current um, Lieutenant Governor Deidre Henderson and former Governor Olean Walker, which I think is going to be a really compelling episode, really fascinating stories of these women in politics. So, And more to, more than that, but that's what we're working on currently. And you can find it all at uh, UPR, not season two yet, but you can find the past episodes at uh, thisisherplace.org. And uh, the season two will appear there uh, in, in the coming months. Uh, Naomi Watkins is co-host of the podcast. Uh, thanks so much for joining us again. Thanks, Tom.